Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Welcome to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack, and I'm, as usual, joined by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot. And uh, guys, we've uh, lately had a, a really big increase in the number of subscribers to our podcast. And uh, so right off the top, a big thank you to all of our new listeners. Uh, we really hope that you continue to find this podcast to be a valuable resource to you. And uh, we've also made uh, a whole bunch of new friends as of late. Uh, we had Dr. James White from Alpha and Omega Ministries on the podcast with us uh, a month back. We had John Cooper from the rock band Skillet uh, on the podcast last week. And Joe, uh, you were just on the Founders Ministries podcast, uh, The Sword and the Trowel, uh, and Founders Ministries is with Dr. Tom Askell and Dr. Jared Longshore. We're very thankful for them and their ministry, and uh, we hope you listen to their podcast with Joe as well that should be out now. And uh, one, one of the reasons we think that uh, this ministry is getting an increasing amount of attention is that we are dedicated to training Christians in a biblical worldview and in cultural apologetics. And the desire for uh, the kind of training that we offer, I think, is only growing because we have a lot of cultural issues really pressing in on us as Christians in the West at the moment. Uh, and these are cultural issues that they, they can't be ignored, uh, they can't be dismissed. And uh, Joe, I wonder if, uh, to, to get us going here, if you could just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what we mean at the Ezra Institute when we're talking about cultural apologetics. Sure. Well, I think uh, probably there may be some of our uh, listeners out there who are unfamiliar with apologetics more generally. And so uh, it would be helpful, I think, to at least mention something about the the origin of the term um, in the in the New Testament the Greek word apologia or apologia uh, literally means um, reason defense. Um, we're familiar with, some of us at least will be familiar with the whole idea of giving an apology among the ancient Greeks. And it didn't mean in, in that era saying, I'm sorry and apologizing for things. It meant, it meant making your defense. And so that's where uh, the term comes from. Uh, we, um, we, we come across it, of course, in perhaps the most famous passage about apologetics in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where we're told to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense, uh, that word apologia there, to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you, do this with gentleness and with respect, keeping a clear conscience. So, from a biblical standpoint, it is a it is a scriptural mandate to to give an apologetic, to uh, give a defense of the faith, and and it's assumed that it is defensible. You can give a reason for it. Uh, it's not purely subjective or autobiographical. There is something that's uh, universal, if you will, about uh, the faith, and is thereby defensible. And then we get uh, we're told Peter literally tells us to get fit. Always be ready, get get fit, be be exercised, be trained, be equipped in such a way that when you're asked about uh, the faith, which 
you're always asked about the faith in a context, and that is within a particular cultural context, uh, you need to be ready with um, a reason. So apologetics isn't just for an elite class, an elite few, a sort of um, Christian intellectual ninjutsu for people with high IQs. It is actually for all Christians to be, be ready to answer when they're asked a reason for why they hope in Christ. And of course, that will be different depending on the gifts that you have and the, the, the background that you have and who is asking and so on. It's not a one-size-fits-all, but there is an expectation that we'll all, all of us will be ready to defend the faith. Now, as it's been traditionally understood, apologetics is usually assumed to be a kind of handmaiden to evangelism. Uh, you, uh, Christians who are perhaps deemed less sophisticated, just do plain old witness and evangelism. And then it's often thought, well, but the really sophisticated ones, they do apologetics. Now, of course, let's not minimize the significance of the use of an apologetic in evangelism. Um, very often as we proclaim the faith, we're asked questions about it. And it's important that when we're asked questions we, about the faith as we share it and declare it, uh, we respond to them. Not because we think our the cleverness of our answer will bring somebody to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who brings people to Christ. But God uses preaching and he uses prayer and he uses arguments to bring people to himself. So um, that's one of the functions of apologetics is to is to be utilized in the task of evangelism, but it's not the only one. And I think that sometimes that's where it gets left. It gets sort of imprisoned there as though the function of apologetics is to give sophisticated answers to traditional questions of, of dogmatics, basically. Uh, questions related to the identity of Christ, um, maybe questions related to the authority of Scripture, uh, the reliability of the text. Of course, very traditionally, questions about the existence of God, and I've done my fair share of debates on the existence of God over the years, as you know, uh, questions about evil and suffering and so on. Right. And, and when you started as an apologist, these were the kinds of questions you were seeking to answer, were you not? Absolutely. I mean, uh, 25 years ago, uh, these were still the dominant questions uh, that, that people were asking, you know, uh, questions about, well, you know, can I really believe in miracles or questions mm. about, I really need some reasons, some historical reasons to know that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And um, it's not that those are bad questions to answer. They're perfectly good questions. And, and, and I think there's been some excellent work done in responding to them. And as I say, I wouldn't never have been involved in, so many debates on God's existence over the years had I not thought that these are important questions. What's interesting about our own time, which is, which is why it's, it's one of the functions of Christian apologetics to build coherent responses to those questions. But the, but the, the, the questions are, have gradually changed, and I think uh, part of the reason for that, perhaps the major reason for it, they've shifted to more civilizational, cultural questions. And that's because increasingly we live in a biblically illiterate and de-Christianized uh, Western culture. And in that kind of an environment, people often don't know enough to ask questions about the uh, text of Scripture or the doctrine of the Trinity or uh, the, the, the specific uh, miracles recorded in the Bible. They're, they're so illiterate about the faith um, that 
actually you would expect those kinds of questions to emerge from a more Christianized culture with a deeper familiarity with the Bible and with the specific claims of the Christian faith. And I would add, you know, a, a, a cultural context still in the grip of a, more, of a more rationalistic perspective. The culture has shifted now to a more irrationalistic note and tone. Um, that's another discussion. But certainly, you know, when we think about the issue of biblical literacy and ignorance of the faith and the way that culture and the questions of faith and religion have been politicized radically so that almost every basic belief of Christians now about human identity, for example, life, uh, human sexuality, and so forth, have become political, uh, politicized, or historical, cultural questions. Uh, we're almost forced at, at this juncture now to, to, to a reappraisal of what um, apologetics contributes and, 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 and what it actually constitutes. So I would say that what we've called more traditional answers in apologetics, evidentialism and so on, uh, is a subset of a much broader task that is much larger than simply offering evidences where appropriate. And we can go all the way back to the pagan world and the apologetic of St. Augustine in the City of God, which you can see, uh, well, if you read it or listen to it, uh, it, it, it becomes obvious that, in Augustine's mind, the defense of the faith was a much bigger and broader challenge than uh, offering some evidences for the resurrection. It involved painting a picture of an entire world and life view, uh, an entire perspective on reality, beginning with actually the, the, the fall of the angels, and, and this contrast between the city of God and the, the city of man, kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light, if you will, because he was asked a question, and the question he was asked to respond to, uh, which led to the writing of the city of God, was, uh, well, Rome is falling, uh, it's collapsing, and this has happened since people have been embracing Christianity. Is it not the case that the gods are angry um, and uh, essentially it's because of Christianity and the collapse of paganism that, that Rome is falling, um, and uh, therefore your, this Christian god is a weak god, because in, in, in the ancient world, of course, you, if you conquered another nation, you carried off their gods, you usually added them to your pantheon, but you carried them off to demonstrate the victory of your god or gods over the foreign nation. So if if Christianity was somehow seemed to be being defeated, uh, then isn't this a bad sign for Christianity? And so he writes this response. That's kind of a long way of saying apologetics has a much longer and deeper uh, history and tradition than um, what we've come to know as popular evangelical apologetics over the last sort of 60 or 70 years. And um, it's interesting that, uh, if I can touch on this briefly as well, the primary metaphor for knowledge and truth within this previous tradition, we might call a rational, a rationalistic tradition, which goes all the way back to Plato, of course, and Plato's cave, very famous illustration he gave of, of the cave when he's talking about justice and the state, and the idea of uh, people in a dark cave, 
and there's a fire behind them and their shadow is is the only thing they can see the only thing they've ever been exposed to is the shadow on the wall that is cast and then eventually of course they go outside and the the light of the sun is painful and uh, they first look at images reflected in the water and then they look at the the actual thing that they're looking at and then eventually they turn to the sun itself and the whole idea being that uh, uh, reason is uh, and, and rationality is the thing that gives true sight. It's the inner light of reason. Everything else is just shadows and appearance. You know what we look, what we see out there is shadow and appearance. But reason gives us the true insight into everything because being an idea, that is mind and being, both uh, coalesce in this whole uh, idea of a, a rational order. And that's how you can relate mind and uh, things. Uh, mind and being is because they both participate in this idea of rationality. And so the metaphor that's been tended to be used historically in um, uh, Enlightenment thought and then in, in apologetics has tended to be this idea of, of, of a rationalism, of a, of a rationalistic apologetic, that it's, it's reason that is absolutely key. Um, and that you can see that in the way that traditional apologetics operates. Now, cultural apologetics, hmm. which is the question, I the question you yes, actually asked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> cultural apologetics is, um, I feel like I'm doing a James White now. I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of going around the houses to get to the point. Yeah. And, and it's actually helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, We're enjoying the trip. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cultural apologetics, well, obviously, we're joining the, the, the terms culture and apologetics. So culture, cultus, cult, religion. We're now talking about fundamental foundations. And uh, it was Cornelius Van Til who basically defined uh, Christian apologetics as the, as the defense of the Christian philosophy of life. It isn't just a narrow defense of a few Christian doctrines. It's the defense of the whole... Christian philosophy of life, and I, uh, I've kind of over t- over time worked on something of a of a of a definition of cultural apologetics, drinking from a few uh, springs, and and uh, but um, you know having my own shower um, is, uh, and I've put it this way: cultural apologetics is the work of articulating and establishing the Christian mind, conscience, and imagination within a culture, so that the embodied Christian world and life view is recognized as true, satisfying, and full of meaning. And I think probably a more helpful metaphor for knowing within cultural apologetics is actually hearing as opposed to uh, seeing, because when we look at Scripture, Scripture speaks of creation coming about by the Word of God, which calls everything into existence— Bible says that Christ holds all things together by the word of his power. Um, And Jesus very clearly says to us, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as the word goes out, um, uh, as, if you will, command and promise uh, with creation, uh, creatures are called to respond. That's what it means to be human, to have responsibility. Um, and so in terms of knowing from this, this uh, from, from a cultural apologetics perspective, um, as God speaks, all of creation responds. Uh, 
and uh, we speak in terms of the reformational tradition of course in terms of laws and norms right that god god has spoken his command and his promise and his these laws and norms hold for creation and uh, the the norms as human beings we're called to respond to and and that of course is what makes different directions in culture possible is that people respond to that word from god in in different ways and so as we address the question of knowledge and of truth it isn't just analytical knowledge that now we're concerned with of course analytical knowledge is important um, uh, our theoretical thinking, our, uh, our uh, analysis of things. But we all know that sometimes we experience, we know things and we know what is true, sometimes based on what we feel, uh, sometimes based on the, the sense of beauty and awe that uh, we encounter. Listening to a piece of, <laughs> of music uh, can sometimes be just as powerful. Listening to Handel's Messiah can be much more powerful than reading the cosmological argument, which is an argument I don't think much of, by the way. But, <laughs> but in, in terms of the, 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 the actual notion that the only way that we come to knowing and truth is by an, an, a specifically analytical logical activity um, is, is not true. And, and cultural apologetics tries to cover not just the analytical aspect, uh, which it does in terms of uh, worldview analysis, wh- where it brings to bear what we can call a, um, we, maybe we can come to this later, but a transcendental criticism of worldviews, where we're, we're asking about the preconditions of what makes a view of reality intelligible. Um, but there are, there are multiple entry points, because it's about the word that is spoken and all creation responding uh, and the natural world responds lawfully. The human world of culture uh, can respond in rebellion or obedience to God's uh, laws and norms. So um, I think that whole idea of, of cultural apologetic being about articulating and establishing the Christian mind, conscience and imagination within a culture so that the embodied Christian world and life who is recognized as true, satisfying and full of meaning um, is what we're talking about when we speak of, of cultural um, apologetics. And, and of course, that means that uh, you have to engage with persons and with cultural institutions that shape uh, the culture in order to do that, hence cultural apologetics, which is why, as an institute, we're concerned with, um, you know, people might look at our programs and say, what kind of an apologetics organization is this? I mean, they've got something on worldview in the marketplace, they've got... Uh, they're running a, a colloquium for pastors. They've got they talk about law and politics and education and arts and media and so forth. Well, that's cultural Farming. apologetics. Farming, right? Exactly. We've because the whole of reality is a res- is responding to the word of God, and in each of these areas, we are bringing a defense of the Christian understanding of life um, as a response to the word of God. And so it's a, it's a more holistic, I would say, a more mm. integral, mm. integral right. approach to apologetics that takes into account the rich diversity uh, of life, which includes the analytical element, but mm-hmm. it does not focus exclusively there. Mm-hmm. And just to, just to chip in on that, uh, one thing that uh, that comes to me as you're describing this is that I also find it, if you compare it to a uh, the sort of apologetics that 
everyone was into and the kind of apologetics questions that a lot of people were asking 25 years ago, mm-hmm. a cultural apologetic approach is is making sense of reality, if I can just put it another way, for for everyone, for all of our experience. Whereas, you know, if it's if it's not an intellectual problem for me to uh, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, then that to, if I'm if I'm an inquirer, then that's not really that's not really my bag. Like, what what else you got? Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a really good point. It's the it's the it's the recognition that we're confronted with the fullness of reality. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And and the the fullness of creation, the totality of creation, and and human experience functioning in a multi- multiplicity of of aspects of life. And that's why some people think, you know, or oh, apologetics is not for me because they do these sort of rational arguments about uh, mm-hmm. um, an ontological argument. I mean, what's that? And mm-hmm. you know, cosmological arguments and teleological arguments mm-hmm. and. I'm just not really interested in that, and mm-hmm. I so I don't, and I've never those were never questions for me. Hence, all oh, apologetics is not relevant. I don't right. need it. And then all of a sudden, you've got this tiny little group of people <laughs> who've got an interest in apologetics. So what we're saying is, no, it's not that we're trying to make everybody apologists, but we are trying to help people to recognize that being asked about a reason for the hope that is in you may well not be. Mm-hmm. Give me five good reasons yeah, to believe right. the resurrection happened, mm-hmm. or convince me that miracles are possible, mm-hmm. uh, or some, some. Well, these aren't the questions that the youth that are coming to our camps are going to face. Absolutely, right. and they're not the question right. that the youth that come to our and the young people that come to our programs even ask for mm-hmm. the most part. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, where that uh, shift happens, it, I mean that that it's reflective, as I said, of where culture has moved. Mm-hmm. But there's something truly beautiful about being able to take in the whole of life and articulate the Christian mind, Mm. imagination, um, and conscience with respect to it, whether that's law or politics or the arts or whatever. And some people will come to faith because they encounter a beautiful vision of of art or um, law or even education or life. Mm -hmm. I know somebody um, who actually came to faith uh, because of the witness of of pro-lifers as they articulated what life really is mm-hmm. and means. Mm-hmm. And that led this person mm-hmm. to faith. And of course, I know people that came to faith in some of my debates on the existence of God, or at least that was the key link in the chain for them. Mm. Um, so there's a multiplicity of ways. I, I know other people who came to faith reading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Mm. Uh, yeah. So this is the this is the thing. We can articulate um, a a truly... Christian and defend a truly Christian philosophy of life in a multiplicity of areas mm-hmm. and therefore make the faith incredibly attractive, desirable, satisfying. And people people come to see that it's true in a variety of different ways, not necessarily through the analytical logical. Mm. Um, and I think actually probably for half our listeners or more, that will be true. They didn't mm-hmm. come to faith because they heard a list of, mm-hmm. of, of arguments um, and sort of compared them one on either side, it would have been a process of a number of different things and perhaps a variety of different arguments or reasons were a part of that process. Hmm. Now, Joe, you mentioned a bit earlier that, uh, you know, as Christians here in the West, we sometimes are guilty of limiting our apologetic to, you know, answering simply the questions about the Christian faith. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on why... Uh, 
or even what is it about Christianity in the West that wants to almost avoid a more robust cultural apologetic? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, a cultural apologetic involves uh, utilizing you know, philosophy and mm. history and the sciences and the arts and so forth. And so um, on the one hand, I would say that sometimes we just feel I'm, people feel r- radically unqualified to 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 wander into the the whole realm. Yeah. Mm. Um, they uh, they feel that they haven't got a developed worldview. A couple mm. of weeks ago, we addressed the issue of Christian worldview, why mm. it's important, and uh, if you don't have, as we often say at the institute, a a developed Christian world and life view as a believer, um, your faith can be superficial and your defense of the faith will be fragile it's not that you're not a christian uh, it's not that you don't love the lord but without giving this some thought uh, we find that we lack confidence in, in in this whole area so so some of it could be um put down to the confidence issue i mean how do you uh, uh begin to articulate a defense of a christian view of law or the state or education um, and so on. So um, th- that's, a, that's a challenge. Um, I think the other reason, obviously, is that um, we felt comfortable for decades, I think, mm. in, the Christ- in the traditional questions of apologetics. That the seem- questions that rest on a basic presumption of a Christian worldview right. to begin with. Precisely. Right. And, and they feel churchy. Mm. Okay, I, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, I can talk about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. I can I can say something about the authority of the Bible um, because it feels ecclesiastical. It feels mm. part of the life of the church. It feels like, well, that's, an, a, that's a domain we're allowed to be in. I think now a big part of the problem is that the as the questions have become civilizational, cultural, very much about the broader philosophy of life, we're not sure that the faith belongs there in culture does it really belong in in legislation in politics in education in the arts in all of these different things aren't those neutral areas of life i thought we're just answering questions about uh, church doctrines christian Mm -hmm. doctrines um and uh so that's another reason i think a third reason nathan would be that it is a costly business now to engage in apologetics cultural apologetics because you can still feel relatively safe in even in our own culture answering very abstract questions about the existence of a divine being or the um or the archaeological evidence for the uh the new testament for example those are still fairly comfortable spaces but as soon as you uh start to articulate uh, an, an, an apologetic that answers the questions mm-hmm. of our culture mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. about yep. human identity, mm-hmm. about human sexuality, uh, about um, uh, law, about the relationship of church and state, about the nature and character of education, about what constitutes beauty and the aesthetic aspect of our lives and so on. Suddenly, uh, and, and even questions about history and uh, and um, the way in which history is being now put to a political purpose uh, within critical theory and political correctness. Uh, suddenly you're now in highly controversial territory. I was looking at um, some research that's just come out. Um, in fact, I think it's just in the last few days that, that, that some of this research has now been published, looking at 
the institutions of higher learning and academics within those institutions. And I think the 14 to 1 ratio of of um, academics on the what we might call the, the the progressive critical theory radical left to those who would have a more uh, Christian conservative world and life view, and it makes a lot of them afraid to speak mm. out. We 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 hear about cancel culture all the time, um, but it's there's self censorship going on as well all of the time in these arenas now in our culture. People are afraid of the reaction they're afraid of the response they're afraid of losing their job they're afraid of right. losing their, their their livelihood perhaps their professional standing their opportunity to advance in their career and um uh, many of the academics interviewed are quite ready to acknowledge that they discriminate against in interview against people who mm. don't mm. share their progressive mindset so if that's the case in the institutions of higher learning, of course, that makes its way out into all of these other cultural institutions as well. Hence, all of the pressure that um, that people feel. And that's why, uh, that's perhaps the main of the three reasons I've offered. That's probably the preeminent reason mm -hmm. why we find it very difficult to want to uh, move into the area of articulating a Christian mind, conscience and imagination for law, the arts, politics, education, and so on and so forth. Because... There we run into the midst of a civil war. Mm. Uh, and we chatted a little bit earlier about um, young people and their need to be equipped with a cultural apologetic. And of course, we address that at our uh, summer camps, the Worldview Leadership Camp and the Faith and Farm Camp. But uh, something they're really going to have to deal with in their future is Bill C6. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we've done a whole podcast on that issue uh, a few months back. But now in the United States, there's a similar piece of legislation known as the Equality Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're unfamiliar with this, uh, the, the Equality Act, it's, it's just passed in the House and it'll now go on to the Senate. Um, but it seeks to have sexual orientation and gender identity become protected classes. And what's interesting is all Americans uh, already experience the protection of their rights under the U.S. Constitution. But this federal law it will back up the idea that gender identity supersedes someone's biological sex. And, I mean, the implications of that are endless uh, when it comes to the use of public facilities, uh, male and female sports, and we've seen a lot of issues surrounding that already. Um, there are questions about custody rights from parents who refuse to have, uh, you know, their minor children children undergo transgender uh surgeries and procedures. And then, of course, we've got uh, religious schools, hospitals, adoption agencies. All of these could face sanctions mm -hmm. uh, if, if uh, they uphold their teachings in regard to sexuality. So th this is certainly a question that, uh, I mean, not only young people, but mm -hmm. uh, everyone uh, has to face with a, a, a robust and biblical cultural apologetic. So, Joe, maybe you could walk us through this real kind of rubber meets the road issue. Um, yeah. How yeah, do we bring an Augustinian kind yeah. of? Uh, you know, it's not it's not the Christian's fault that your your city is uh, falling yeah. down around you. Yeah. Well, I mean, what we're living through with this is the the fruit. It's the it's the outworking um, of a of a world and life view that denies um, creational normativity 
in in our cultural response, in our hearing, in our listening to the laws and norms of Scripture, we are responding in rebellion. Mm. And we know actually we're in rebellion, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we're pressing on ahead nonetheless. Mm. Uh, this you certainly couldn't, um, you know. I mean, the whole idea of of, a, of we've talked about rationality, and you know, our culture historically has trumpeted how rational it is, and so on. Rationality is about making right distinctions. Mm. Uh, well, if we can't distinguish between male and female, uh, which is the foundation of the analytical, logical aspect of our lives, mm-hmm. uh, to, to make fundamental and basic distinctions, then our situation is hopeless with distinguishing anything else. Uh, so we we have a, uh, from, from, an, from an Augustinian standpoint, uh, we, you know, cult- cultural apologetics does three things. What it does, first of all, is it says, first, we have to understand uh, culture, and that's where some worldview analysis has to happen. Then we would, the next step would be to in- to the engagement with the culture so that we engage uh, people and, and institutions. And then the third step is transforming culture where we're trying to create new uh, cultural practices and um, rhythms and products and distinctly Christian institutions and so on. Uh, in in getting to, the, to grips with this, uh, What's the fundamental of creation? Well, let me let me give you let me give you five basics actually of as as the basis for 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 a cultural apologetic that we can apply to any of these issues. First of all, creation, which I've described as as command and promise. Right, it's the through the word of God and the promise of God, and how we respond to God's laws and norms within creation is an issue of direction, and that's why we can have rebellious cultures. We can have faithful cultures. The second aspect, of course, is the sovereignty of God, and that's the government of God in all things in our Christian world and life view. The creation and ordinances, that is, the these laws and norms that uh, have an invariant direction, even though we can misuse them. Sphere sovereignty, which we've talked about a lot on our, our program, which recognizes the irreducibility of the meaning aspects of life and of the various structures of uh, marriage, family, church, state, and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, the kingdom of God as a fundamental principle, almost as a summary of the destination of all things. So creation and then the fall, redemption, kind of nexus uh, in the communion of the Holy Spirit. So it's about God's, Christ's victory over sin, death, evil, and so forth. And the fact that undergirding all of this is a spiritual conflict. So that's the kind of city of God overpass. And here we are now in a cultural context where having said that human reason and human thinking and human life is autonomous, Mm. which just means Mm self-law, to be a law to oneself, we've basically gotten to the point in a form of ultra-modernity, sometimes it was called post-modernity, where we believe we create the reality in which we live. Mm. And Mm. And we create that reality either by our thought or our words. And in this instance, mm. uh, we could perhaps take the illustration of the radical uh, lesbian feminist uh, Judith Butler, mm-hmm. who uh, whose noteworthy book, uh, Gender Trouble, um, was so influential on, in, in radical feminism, where she basically argues that the idea of sex, of, of, mm. of male and female, is fictive. It's, uh, it's, it's an invention mm. of um, language repetition. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of, it's a form of oppression. Mm-hmm. 
So husband, wife, uh, male and female, even even the idea of womanhood, she would have said is you're not born a woman, you mm. one becomes one. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the body has any meaning prior to the language uh, that I impose upon it mm. uh, to give it its structure, it's a kind of an empty shell, if right. you will. It's a, we're, we're, it's a body without organs. And uh, we, through, the, um, uh, through a sort of incantation of our own word, and notice how this is a parody yeah. of the creation, right? Mm-hmm. Because God uh, says that he has made them on the sixth day. Mm-hmm. He created man after his image, male and female. He created them. God has, when we think about these um, uh, structures and these and, and the, the irreducibility of the distinctions within creation, he made everything after its kind. And that's true through, through, through all of reality. And here is one of the most basic to human life, mm-hmm. the, this fundamental and basic distinction between male and female, mm-hmm. which is the found foundation for marriage and families. So if you want to know marriage and family collapsing and then everything that's built around that human society and, and culture, uh, this fundamental building block is the irreducibility of male and female, God's ordination of, of the marriage relationship and the, the structure of the family. But if there is no if there is no law or norm with a specific direction that God has established for creation, and uh, we are not subject to law, but we are a law unto ourselves, we are autonomous. Then yes, with my own mind, with my own language, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the lingual aspect of reality mm. to redefine reality, and right. it just mm-hmm. takes us right back to Genesis chapter three: "You mm-hmm. will be as gods." Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing or determining for yourself good and evil, right from wrong. We're in a culture now which says we can determine for ourselves what sex we're going to be. Mm -hmm. We will say that the creation itself is not normed at all until I apply my own idea or language to it. Mm. And that's the essence of what uh, uh, this problem we're facing now is all about. Sometimes I think, you know, many many of us even as Christians just think these things drop down out of the sky from nowhere suddenly boys want to be girls girls want to be boys and we're going to start redefining marriage and you mm-hmm. no they don't drop down out of the sky mm-hmm. when it comes to the whole idea of um, rational communication between humans which is increasingly difficult when you're dealing with people like mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. how do you have a rational discourse with somebody who doesn't recognize the distinction of male and female mm-hmm. is the simple question becomes is human rational thinking normed is it subject to norms Mm -hmm. or do uh the are are the norms and laws for thinking determined by the rational agents involved in the discussion right and if they are determined by the agents involved in any discussion then you can have your norms and i'll have mine Mm -hmm. how can you actually ever reach uh an agreement about what uh, uh, rationality right. and, and a rational discourse actually is mm-hmm. uh, if it's if uh, and of course that essentially breaks down and destroys the possibility of rational discourse you end up just with people screaming at each other which is mm-hmm. largely what's happening in our culture because the fundamental the underpinnings for that kind of a discourse in society because the foundations have been destroyed mm-hmm. it becomes a lot about shouting and screaming and and who's got the strongest uh you know, um, advocacy group with the loudest voice. If if it's not self-normed, then actually the reality is all 
rational human discourse presupposes that we are subject to norms for rational discourse. Right. Right. There are laws to norms to which we are subject. Uh, just as um, you know, an an atom, you know, a, a law basically is, as we've understood it historically, is the conditions under which something can exist. Mm. That's what we mean by it. So, uh, if we took atoms, for example, and we and we said, well, um, there there are there there is a law for atoms to which atoms are subject, but the laws to which atoms are subject are not the atoms themselves. They're not identical, right? The uh, the the character of redness of your sweater or whatever um, is not identical with the sweater. Mm. Uh, and the, 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 the law for redness, I should say, um, isn't identical with redness. And in the same way, uh, the law that governs the life of atoms is not identical with the atom. Well, the same is true of our human reasoning. Um, otherwise, they would be one and the same. Human, human reasoning and the laws of reasoning would be one and the same thing. There would be no nothing to which they are subject, mm -hmm. which destroys um, rational discourse. Uh, but we're in a situation now culturally with these Equality Acts and Bill C-6 mm -hmm. where we have literally destroyed rational discourse because we've said you can norm life and reality in whatever way you see fit. And uh, we're not subject to anything. We're not subject to any norm or law. And of course, that destroys the meaning of life. It destroys the meaning of reality. Uh, it means that... Uh, uh, the, the boys are changing in the girls' changing room. It means that men are participating, biological males are participating in female sports. Uh, it means that um, some bearded 50-year-old who weighs 200 pounds can be in the shower with the girls. And that's supposed to be normal. Notice the word norm. Mm -hmm. The very idea of normality is based on on the fundamental creational idea that there are norms for creation. And who does not realize in their right mind that a 50-plus-year-old bearded 200-pound man sharing the shower with your 17-year-old daughter at the swimming pool is not okay? Uh, that, that, that men are not women, and so on. And yet these things now, to say that, even for feminists who've, who've been hoisted on their own petard in this debate <laughs> to, to say uh, that yeah, while a woman you know, menstruates, uh, uh, a, a woman has a womb, um, is now an, um, an aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's more than a microaggression. It's, 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 it's an offense. It's to be transphobic, to make the most basic fundamental observation of a distinction after their kind. So if you want to understand this issue, it's ultimately cosmological. It's not, it's not a debate about, oh, you're so discriminatory, uh, as though people even know what they mean by that. Equality, by the way, is a term that belongs in mathematics only. Hmm. Uh, that's why we have the equal sign, two parallel lines of an equal length, because it's only when we're dealing with numbers that we can talk about that kind of absolute equality because we are the only kind of equality the Bible recognizes is that we're all created in the image of God mm -hmm. um, and we're all uh, equally sinners and we all equally need redemption and a savior. Beyond that, the rich diversity of life and of people is what makes life worth living. And it's the rich tapestry of life. So 
equality needs to stay where it belongs in mathematics. It's fine as a concept there. Um, everywhere else, we need to be talking about responsibility. Our response ability to the normative structures, to normality that God has established. And that doesn't destroy diversity uh, because God's norms are a direction for our lives. Mm. And, uh, you know, you and the three of us could head off now towards the lake and we could all arrive at the lake. That's the direction. But we might take a slightly different path on the way there uh, because how we uh, positivize, how we realize these norms in various different cultures might look slightly different, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it wonderful to go to other co- other countries and, mm-hmm. and, and experience their food and their mm-hmm. dress and mm-hmm. their music and so on. Remember that. Uh, yeah, well, we used to be allowed to fly. <laughs> uh, so uh, from, this, from this cultural apologetic standpoint, these are the various streams that we would wander down uh, to look at, well, you, this is an absolutization of the lingual aspect to say that, that language can redefine reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it's uh, um, uh, an absolutization of the rational, of the logical aspect of our lives by saying that my thought can determine all of reality rather than subjection to the creator whose command and promise uh, demands our faithful response. Mm. And uh, that's why we are where we are with these absurd um, uh, notions of human identity. Mm. That's great, Joe. It really is all about faithfulness, isn't it? And uh, that's a great place to wrap up the podcast for today. It's all the time we've got. And this has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. You can go to our website, ezrainstitute.ca, to find more information about our ministry, our high-impact training programs, and summer camps for teens, where we spend a full week immersing young people in biblical worldview and cultural apologetics training. And as we sign off, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. Thank you for listening to Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.